When I was growing up uh, in my parents' house, and I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate. I grew up in the same house my whole life. Mom and Dad got married in 1954. They bought the house in 1956, Dad recently told me. And they have lived in the same place uh, since 1956 and are still there. And, uh, you know, back in October, Linda and I went and visited them. Well, right next to the downstairs bathroom, back in the days when there was only one bathroom in the house, uh, the... Uh, was the room that originally was my room and then was my brother's in my room and then was my sister's room and is now the computer room. Uh, in that room, right in the door frame, uh, were a series of marks as I grew up. And I was measured. And in those days, it was just simple. It was how tall you were. That is the full measurement of who you are as a person. Now, of course, as we know, life changes. You grow up. When I was in uh, 11th grade, my, uh, th there was a, a fire in our utility room, and there was smoke damage to the whole rest of the house. So they painted, you know, sealed and painted the whole rest of the house. So those marks about how tall I was you know, um, and how I grew up, how I measured up, have passed into history underneath Kill's paint uh, that sealed the, uh, the smell of uh, smoke damage, you know, underneath it. Uh, but I still remember that. But it, 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 in ways, it's symbolic, you know, that that painted over part became sort of a transition in my life. As I look back, when I recognize that the way we decide how people measure up now has very little to do with how tall they are, unless they play, you know, basketball in the NBA or perhaps uh, football. Um, we don't measure people by height as much, size them up in that way. We size them up in other ways. And so as I was, I was thinking about that story because this week I'm, I wanted us to, to look at this idea of measuring up. Uh, and the, the story for this week comes to us from Luke chapter 19, um, verses 1 through 10. Uh, just before this, Jesus has turned his eyes toward Jerusalem uh, for the last time. He's headed up. And he knows what he's headed up for. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, his life is about to end. And we're in chapter 19. And if you know anything about Luke, we only have four, five, six more chapters left to go before it's done, uh, the book. So he's headed up to Jerusalem. And on his way, he passes through Jericho. On his way into Jericho, he stops and he heals a blind man at the side of the road who calls out to him. And then as he enters, we hear this story. And I, I need you to hear this story as if for the first time, because let's be honest, if you grew up in Sunday school at all, and I did, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, was the song I learned and sang in Sunday school over and over again. And, you know, part of the time is when you start to learn these Sunday school songs, there's nothing wrong with the songs, but it diminishes the character of the story itself. It becomes just a story about a short guy who climbs a tree and looks for Jesus. And I want us to listen a little bit more 
deeply to this story and hear it not with elementary school ears, uh, unless you're an elementary school student, and then by all means, hear it with elementary school ears because that's the ears you got. But uh, if you're older than that, let's try to hear it with a sort of fresh uh, voice, the story of Zacchaeus, chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, beginning with verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was going through the town when a man whose name was Zacchaeus made his appearance. He was one of the senior tax collectors and a wealthy man. He was anxious to see what kind of man Jesus was, but he was too short and could not see him for the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus who was to pass that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and spoke to him. Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry, because I must stay in your house today. And he hurried down and welcomed him joyfully. They all complained. I, I know you've never heard of people like that before, but uh, they all complained. I don't know who they all were, but apparently everybody but Jesus and Zacchaeus complained. They all complained when they saw what was happening. He was gone to stay at a sinner's house, they said. But Zacchaeus stood his ground and said to the Lord, Look, sir, I am going to give half my property to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody, I will pay him back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek out and save what was lost. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't think it's uh, an accident that the stories happen in this order. Jesus sets his eye on Jerusalem. They go up and they heal a man who is literally figured, you know, fig, you know, literally blind. Uh, whose name he's left unnamed in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and then he comes into Jericho, and a man who wants to see him, named Zacchaeus, feels like the only way he can do it is to get taller than he already is physically. Now we need to be for just a moment in Zacchaeus's shoes. Zacchaeus is now an outsider in his own community. And we know this, and, and it tells us the story of why. You know, Zacchaeus is, besides being short physically, he's also a head tax collector, and he's wealthy. Now, tax collectors, you know, you may not think very highly of the IRS. You're perfectly fine to feel various ways about whatever way you want to feel about the IRS and the work that they do in collecting our revenue for the government to run. Uh, by the way, Linda once worked for the IRS, you know, as an auditor, just so you know. So you have a much better vision of how good the IRS is now, don't you? Because at least Linda worked there once. Um, but tax collectors in those days, bid, it was a bidding system. If you imagine contractors today, it was a bidding system. The local governor would say, it's about time that we took up, you know, that we took taxes. So... 
uh, people would submit bids. I'll get you, I can get you $10,000. I can get you twelve. I can get you 12500 sold. And you paid up front the $12,500. So you had to be wealthy to begin with. You paid up front to buy that. So now you had the right to get back your $12,500 any way you wanted to. And oh, by the way, you're going to have to collaborate with the Roman oppressors to do so. But don't worry, because the Roman soldiers will be your guards. And we'll also, you know, if you need to use extortion to take the money away from folks, not a problem. If you need to take their stuff, not a problem. It's yours to get back the 12500 Now, if you make back more than 12500 we don't care. We accepted 12500 as the bid. So whatever you make that's profit is yours to keep. So you can imagine the system kind of encouraged you to... Uh, Extort as much as you possibly could out of everybody you saw and take as much as you could. Now imagine Zacchaeus is a man in a Jewish community and yet he's collaborating with those who have moved in and oppressed all of his people and he's become wealthy by doing so. Is he still an insider? Is he an insider among his sisters and brothers in the community? Or how do you think he was seen or not seen? He was an outsider now, a collaborator. So we have a guy who's a tax collector, which is bad enough in our times, but was really bad in, in these ancient times. He's, he's not that tall. He's wealthy, which, you know, there weren't a whole lot of wealthy people. In those days, it was pretty much, there was no middle class. The idea of a middle class is much more recent. There were wealthy people and powerful people, and there were nobodies, or what the Bible refers to in Hebrew as the Anawim, the people of the land, which meant, you know, people who subsisted on the most basic kinds of things. Zacchaeus had sold his soul to become wealthy. He had sold his soul to become wealthy, if you will. He had sold out any integrity and any connection he had to his community. All because he thought what he wanted, perhaps. And You know, see, I'm psychologizing him. Who knows what Zacchaeus was thinking 2,000 years ago? I don't. But I'm going to guess. You know, for whatever reason, he thought he might fill that God-sized hole inside himself with piles of cash. And perhaps now, at this point in his life, he's realized how empty that is. What good does it do if you can throw a party and nobody will come? You know, you can have a sumptuous meal and you can pay people to come. What does it feel like to not have friends except those that are looking to lavish off of you? You know, you read the stories about people who become celebrities overnight in our country, people who had nothing and then get something, and when they get something, all of their friends, people they didn't even know show up and kind of bilk them of everything they have, and then suddenly when they don't have anything anymore, they evaporate overnight. They evaporate overnight. Well, Zacchaeus can't even buy a friend at this point. And what's worse... If he was a good Jewish boy and he was a Roman collaborator, he was 
he would have been kicked out of the synagogue. There would have been no relationship between him and his family. His mom couldn't talk to him. I mean, literally could not talk to him. If he had brothers and sisters or other family members, extended family members, there was no relationship anymore. It was over. Cut off. Zacchaeus was alone. And Zacchaeus wanted to see who this Jesus was. He wanted to take a measure of a man who was coming to town that he had heard about. The same Jesus who had just healed somebody who was physically blind outside. So Zacchaeus the outsider realizes everybody else, if there's a parade in town, you know, he can't see over everybody in front of him. There was a parade in town yesterday in uh, D.C. If you didn't get to go, I didn't get to go, but it was okay. Uh, but I saw pictures of family members, and oftentimes at parades in today's world, you know, kids get to go up front so they can see what's going on. Um, and you try to let shorter people see, you know, uh, maybe you move your shoulder a little bit, you know, you're not, you don't let them in. No, <laughs> no, there's no letting them in, but, you know, you might move your, you know, well, Zacchaeus is already outsider. Why should you get to see Jesus? You can only imagine maybe whatever was parade was passing by, Zacchaeus knew nobody was going to make any special allowances for him to see this Jesus and how he measured up. So the outsider does something that's even more demeaning for a Jewish man in the first century. He ran. Imagine if you have long robes on. Imagine for you women if you had a long dress that went all the way to the floor. All the way to the floor. And you took off running. Yeah, that's just uh, maybe high heels too. I don't, I'm not saying that Zacchaeus wore high heels, but you know... Uh, it's, it's not dignified. And in a society that's based purely on honor, that's based purely on how you look to everybody else, you already look bad. You're already an outsider. And you've embarrassed yourself even more. And then the other thing that adult Jewish men in the first century didn't do is climb stuff. So what does the boy do? He runs and then he climbs something. A sycamore tree so he could see. Because somehow seeing this Jesus, he didn't know what was involved. He had no idea. You, you hear stories about Jesus. Let's be honest. We hear stories about Jesus. Even if you're not a Christian, you could talk to almost anybody. They've heard something about this Jesus boy. He's an okay guy. He was a great teacher. He taught peace. He taught love. He did this. He did that. We have all of these wonderful Rumors about who Jesus is out in the world. Zacchaeus has heard some rumors. He wants to measure Jesus for himself, wants to see him. Now, when I was growing up, the way you did that is you popped into church on a Sunday morning because you assumed that, that you would see Jesus there. Now, of course, you don't necessarily assume that anymore. And I'm not so sure it was a good assumption when I was growing up either, <laughs> that you popped into church, you would see Jesus. You would certainly see some nice pomp and circumstance and some robes and some other cool things. But would you really see Jesus? I don't know. So he climbs the tree, and Jesus passes by. And something that I didn't even pay attention to until I was reading this over and over again this week. Jesus looks up and sees him. What does it feel like to feel like you've not ever been seen for who you are? 
What does it feel like to feel like you're a nobody? That you don't matter? And that if you are seen for who you are, it won't be okay? Zacchaeus must have felt that way in that tree. And still he risked all of that to see Jesus. And then Jesus saw him. You see, the way we measure Jesus is oftentimes by the way we want to see the boy, the man, while forgetting that we want to be seen by Jesus, really seen, and not just really seen, but loved. So much of our society is predicated on seeing and being seen. Think about it. You know, I, when I was growing up, go to a job interview. You dress the best you can dress up. You look your best. You put on your toughest handshake. And even if you didn't, you kept practicing. You know, you wanted to just squeeze it just right. Not too tight, uh, but not, uh, not loose. Solid. Need to be solid. That was a good, oh, that was a good handshake. You know, you wanted to be sure you were there. I'm only speaking as a man. I don't know exactly, you know, I can only speak from, you know, what my experience was. But, you know, you wanted to be seen. And because first impressions make all the difference in the world. But somehow I think that when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, he saw beyond just skin deep. And I think that's been our problem for way too long here, is all we ever do is look skin deep. That one's pretty, that one's not. That one's tall, that one's not. That one's rich, that one's not. That one's well-dressed, that one's not. That one's bigger, smaller, faster, slower, older, younger. Whatever it happens to be, there's always a label we put on somebody, and it's always skin deep. It's always skin deep. Because any time that you have to stoop to labeling somebody, you're not capturing anything about them at all, except what you want to. So Jesus looks up, sees him, and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. May have been the first time in forever that Zacchaeus had had company that he might really want to have, not just to entertain for business. Imagine that. This man that all you wanted to do was catch a glimpse of. You just want to see. But for the first time in a long time, you are seen for who you are and affirmed. I'm coming to your house. Now, never mind all of the religious people that were looking for Jesus and who are now ticked off. How is that any different than religious people today? The people that Jesus is seeking to get to, the people that Jesus loves, we close the doors to because they don't look like us or act like us or think like us or seem like us. I'd love to think I'm just like Zacchaeus. I want to see and be seen. But more often than not, I'm the religious crowd that blocks Jesus from being seen. I'm the one who makes a predetermination about who gets to see him, who I'll even give the story to. Isn't that messed up? That is just messed up. What if you're the only person that another person will ever see Jesus in? In your encounters this afternoon, 
oh, Gordon, now I don't want to put too much weight on you. You know, it's suddenly, oh, great. <laughs> I was really ticked off the other day. It's not my fault. I was in Target and I was upset and I said that thing to that person and they did not see Jesus in me. <laughs> I don't know who they saw, but it wasn't Jesus. It's not, we're not asking for perfection. I'm not. And I don't think God is either. God's asking that you learn to see and be seen. Sometimes you're going to mess up. I, you know what? I have a practice. My life is my practice. I've developed a rhythm of life. I've labeled it. You know, I've got all these little details I do every day. And sometimes on my best days, I don't rise to the bait when something, something ticks me off. I just let it go. But then there are other days. <laughs> you do not want to be on the other side of that. Lightning is shooting out of my eyes. And words are flying out of my mouth, and they're not always nice words. You only hear me on Sunday morning when I try to say nice words, mostly. Throwing crackhead occasionally just so you make sure that you're paying attention. You know, uh, but the truth of the matter is, it's hard to live in this world when you feel like you're unseen for who you really are. That was Zacchaeus' reality, not being seen for who he really was. Because he had sold his soul. Jesus calls him down. Zacchaeus says, this is what I'm going to do. If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to make it right. I'm not going to just make it right. I'm going to make it four times right. If I cheated you for a dollar, I'm giving you four. You know, and uh, I'm going to go back and make this right. I'm going to be honest about this. And then Jesus looks at him and says, he doesn't care what the rest of the crowd's saying, what the religious people saying who are drawing lines, because we're good at drawing lines if nothing else. He looks at him and he says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus, he didn't say, I believe in you, Jesus. It's an interesting intrigue about what salvation might look like. You know, we've been talking about it for a while, all the theories of what it means to be saved and connected. For Zacchaeus, it was turning his life around and doing something different. If anything, something that, you know, our reformationist team might have called works righteousness. And yet for Jesus, it was enough. For Jesus, it was enough. And Jesus said, today salvation has come in this house. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He was made back into a part of the community. Now, I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and see what happened after Jesus had claimed that he was a son of Abraham again, whether the whole community said, oh, Zacchaeus, we want you back. Come on to synagogue tomorrow. You know, whatever. I don't know. I'd like to believe that Jesus' word was enough. But I'm not even sure if Jesus' word would be enough for us. <laughs> there would be still some people we kept outside the door. Even if Jesus said, I need you to love these folks. <laughs> Jesus, you just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> to see and be seen. Not to be found wanting. We live in a society that keeps finding us wanting. Measures us by the wrong standards altogether. Who cares how tall you are? Who cares about all the labels we put on you? 
you are all seen and loved just the way you are. God said so. You're made in God's image. Genesis 1.26. That's how the whole stinking book begins for us. All right, there's some, some other stuff that happens first. But, you know, Genesis 1.26. We only got 25 verses in front of it. You are made in God's image. God sees you for who you are and loves you that way. Who you really are. Not who you're pretending to be. Not where the marks are on the doorstop. Not how everybody else has measured you. God looks at your heart. God sees you and loves you. Knows you by name. So remember what it's like to see and be seen. Remember that you are seen as a gift of God by the eternal mystery. By God. By God. By Jesus. By the Holy Spirit. You are seen. And you are invited to see with those same eyes. When you go out from this place into the world, heck, when you're sitting next to somebody right now in the seat, see them as the people God wants you to see them for. And remember, they're part of the human community, whoever they are and wherever they're from.